What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and I gotta say, I'm a little bit surprised to be talking to you during the month of August. This show was supposed to be on a summer hiatus so I could soak up some sun and relax a little bit. But lo and behold, the U.S. Congress actually decided to do something about climate change. So now I'm back with an episode all about the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, those of you who read our newsletter, the Renewable Energy Smart Brief, and let's be honest, you should all be reading the newsletter. After all, there's a link to sign up to it in the show notes of every episode of this podcast. Anyway, those of you who read the newsletter know that I, in particular, have some egg on my face right about now. You see, I grew up a fan of the Peanuts comic strip. And for months, I've had some fun comparing the dance Senator Joe Manchin was doing with the rest of the Democrats to the Peanuts and the way Lucy always messes with Charlie Brown when he's trying to kick a football. Manchin was Lucy, the rest of the Democrats were Charlie Brown, and the proposed legislation was the football. But alas, Manchin finally held the ball, albeit a smaller ball, in place long enough for the Democrats to give it a kick. So as that ball sails through the air, the last couple of weeks of my summer go sailing out the window. But that's okay, because I'm all in on covering what might end up being a crucial piece of policymaking for years to come. Joining me today to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act is Lauren Collins, a partner at the law firm of Vincent & Elkins. Lauren is a tax expert, so she's going to walk us through all the tax credits the IRA encompasses and share her insights on which elements will mean the most when it comes to the continued deployment of renewables. But before I get started with Lauren, here's a quick word from our sponsor, ABS Quality Evaluations. It's time to get serious about sustainability. Assurance services from ABS Quality Evaluations provide your customers and stakeholders confidence in the high standards of your operations. With over 30 years of experience, we can guide your sustainability journey with key ISO certifications for environmental, health and safety, energy management, responsible care, and more. Our globally accredited quality and risk experts can assist you in reducing your carbon footprint, becoming energy efficient, and saving overhead costs. Go to www.abs-qe.com or click on the link in today's show notes to get started today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for today's episode. I'm pleased to bring on board Lauren Collins. Lauren's a partner at the law firm of Vincent & Elkins. Lauren, how are you doing today? Doing good. Thanks for having me, Sean. Uh, you're a tax expert, so I assume uh, with everything going on in Washington these days, you've been really bored, not a lot to talk about, You know, not a lot of news in your world, right? I will say the last two and a half weeks have probably been the busiest of my career, which is really saying something. I mean, the amount of emails and calls and questions and excitement has been a little overwhelming, I'll be honest with you, but all good things and, you know, really one of the most exciting periods, you know, as we're talking, this is, this is going to be one of the most historic pieces of legislation around climate policy this country has ever seen. So super excited. Great. Okay. Well, let's get into it. Um, obviously, we're going to be talking about the tax side of things today. So you know, this bill is chock full of all kinds of incentives on that front. I want to hear from you. you know, what are the biggest tax aspects of this bill as far as renewables go? Sure. I, I'll start right at the top. I mean, I think the biggest aspects are the renewable energy tax credits. And we see changes or extensions of 
kind of the traditional tax credits that I've worked with for most of my career. So I'm talking about extension of the production tax credit through basically 2032, if not later. Um, We're also seeing the investment tax credit being extended on that same time basis. And we can get more into the details, but basically that involves an extension of the current credits through 2025 and then transition to this cool technology neutral uh, credit regime that will get us through 2032 and beyond. Incorporated in that is the addition of a standalone storage tax credit. We haven't had that in the past. Before, you had to basically make your storage integrated with the renewable asset to to qualify. It was a pain in the butt, basically. So this new legislation gives us a lot more flexibility for storage, which I don't need to tell you is so important for our grid. There's also extensions of 45Q for carbon capture to reduce CO2 emissions, obviously very important for our country and the environment as a whole. And the amount of the credits are really expanded. They have these new bonus credits, which are novel in this legislation. You can kind of stack them on top of each other. So the amount that you're getting back as an investment in these technologies is really hyped up. So it's going to bring that much more capital in for people that are interested in doing these deals, but maybe they haven't made sense economically. This legislation might turn the corner on that and make it so that they start to look attractive. That's great to hear. So are there any sectors within renewables, you know, solar, wind, we mentioned battery, are there any sectors that stand to benefit more than others? So the cool thing about this legislation is I actually think it does a a decent job of leveling the playing field for a lot of technologies. As I mentioned, there's this new technology neutral credit regime. This is something that's been floated for quite a while um, in in past years, but, but never actually made it into legislation. The basic idea is that, you know, currently the way these credits have been written, there's a list of very specific projects and technologies that qualify, you know, maybe 10 or so things for each of the kind of production tax credit and investment tax credit. We've had to meet this narrow definition of kind of a renewable project that the government had chosen to be favored in the tax credit regime. This new legislation and the new um, technology neutral credit specifically that kicks in in 2025 gets rid of that list. So there's no more of this like, you know, list of 10 or so technologies. And instead, all you have to, I shouldn't say all you have to establish because it could be hard, but all you have to establish is that you have a zero greenhouse gas emissions rate. So certainly things like solar and wind, there's no greenhouse gases being put off by those technologies. They, they qualify. But there's a bunch of other stuff that could qualify that we don't even know about that's under development that, you know, people much smarter than I have been working to innovate and could be a big piece of our our energy mix in the future. So instead of picking the winners and losers, it allows the market and innovators and entrepreneurs to come up with technologies and still get the benefit of these tax credits 
that, that make them more economic um, and could be a game changer for our energy mix. So it's, it, I think it's, it's the right move for the government to make. You know, it, it, I think it's one of the, the smarter pieces of this legislation. You know, can also talk a little bit about the market participants, because I think there's there's a good deal of leveling the playing field for folks that want to get into the industry. And, you know, that really comes um, with the credit flexibility that the legislation has incorporated. So basically, you don't need to be a huge sponsor developer to take advantage of these tax credits. There's new provisions in there that would allow smaller developers to monetize tax credits and people that want to invest in these types of industries and projects who hadn't been able to in the past can now enter the market in a way that's not so burdensome or expensive to do. What does the flexibility of those aspects of the bill look like? Are there any thresholds that still have to be met, even though you can be smaller or what's the treatment there? Sure. So there's basically two new provisions that get at this credit flexibility idea There's a direct pay provision, and we saw this originally in the Build Back Better Act that was introduced late last year. The idea there is basically that instead of getting a tax credit against your income tax liability, it kind of works like a grant. You, You file a form with your tax return, you wait some period of time, and then the government issues you a check for the amount that you otherwise would have received as a credit. In the Inflation Reduction Act legislation, they changed it a bit from what was originally in Build Back Better. And basically they limited it kind of really only for tax exempts or governmental entities so that, you know, it can't be the run of the mill taxpayer, you know, your, your normal corporate or you know, developer who's out developing a project and looking to earn a profit isn't going to be able to use direct pay. But you may have municipalities or private equity funds with tax exempt owners that can now invest in these projects. And then instead of getting a tax credit, they get this quote unquote direct payment from the government. There's an exception to that tax exempt use rule for um, carbon capture, hydrogen, and um, advanced manufacturing, which is basically the manufacturing production credit. And, and I think that I think they kind of picked those credits to be exempt. In other words, any taxpayer can use them for 45Q and hydrogen in particular, because it, it kind of gives those technologies a, a bit of like a testing period where we'll let you do this direct payment without you know, without you having to test out your technology, you can kind of rely on the government to finance you for at least the first five years. And then the direct payment goes away and you have to come up with another way to finance those credits. But at least you've proven your technology by that time. The other one's transferability. This isn't as complicated as direct pay, but I think it's much more powerful. and, And maybe for that reason, basically you can sell your tax credits. So, you know, I, I'm a tax lawyer. I primarily have done tax equity over the past decade. And, you know, the, the underpinnings of the, you know, kind of law in that area is you cannot sell tax credits. And, you know, we've worked so, so hard to structure transactions so they don't look like a sale of tax credits. And now this legislation comes out and it's like, sell away, you know, <laughs> file a form, 
find a buyer, pick your price and sell your credits. So, so that's incredibly exciting. Not really any limitations on that. So if you can generate a tax credit, you can find a buyer, you can sell it. All right. Now looking at this bill, there's also this thing called bonus credits. Can you walk us through what that's all about? Yeah, of course. Uh, so there's, there's three different bonus credits for our traditional kind of renewable energy credits that you can stack on top of the otherwise available tax credits. And those three bonus credits are basically a domestic content bonus, an energy community bonus, and a low income community bonus. So taking the ITC, for example, that's generally a 30% credit. If you happen to qualify for all three of those bonuses, probably total hypothetical, because I'll explain why that would be really hard. But if you were able to, your ITC just exploded to 70%. So, you know, the, the government just financed your entire, entire project, right? And so the specifics of each of these, the domestic content bonus basically incentivizes you to purchase components manufactured in the U.S. Basically, you need to make sure all steel, all iron, and 40% of components that make up the facility have been manufactured, produced, or mined in the United States. This is one that people can kind of structure into or opt into. I know that people are talking to their suppliers and manufacturers and trying to figure out if they can qualify. Is there enough stuff being made in the U.S. that they can incorporate into their project? Because you get an additional 10% credit, which, which is a lot. You know, it, and it just becomes a cost-benefit analysis. If I have to pay X amount more for it to be made, in the U.S., but I make X plus Y as a tax credit, I'm going to make that decision and I'll buy in the U.S. So, so those conversations are happening. I think that we will need to catch up a little bit. We need more U.S. manufacturing for this to be possible for people to take advantage of on a large scale. But I think we'll get there. The other two com- two bonuses they're kind of like get lucky bonuses, you know, do you happen to be located in certain communities? And certainly going forward, people will decide to, you know, maybe make their project in that specific community, but there, there'll be a lot of considerations at play. And again, there's a, it's an energy community bonus, which is one of them. That's another 10% bonus. And basically, that is a bonus for locating your project in either a community that has traditionally been like an oil and gas or mining community, and maybe a coal mine closed within the past 20 years. So if you now install a renewable project there, you'll get an additional credit. It was also expanded so that it included projects that are located in communities with unemployment above the national average. So you can see basically they're, they're incentivizing you to develop or construct your project in an area that needs some revitalize, revitalization. Or, and maybe there's a, some displaced workers who are working in a traditional energy sector. And now we're gonna bring in a renewable project and we're going to 
you know, build jobs, you know, high quality, good paying jobs through renewable. So, you know, we're going to give folks a 10% additional tax credit for being located in that community. The third one, the low income community bonus. This is only really available for small projects. So it'll, it'll be of limited import for a lot of um, developers, but certainly it'll encourage um, development in low income communities. I think it's like a five megawatt limit on those projects, but that can be 10 or 20% depending on where you're located. But again, kind of encourages people to bring these projects, which bring jobs and revitalize a neighborhood into certain areas. All right. So I can see what you're talking about. By stacking those all together, it does kind of bring in smaller players, right? Smaller projects in a low-income community that was, you know, previously oil and gas, you know, all those things. So that makes perfect sense. Right. And, And it all goes hand in hand with this overall kind of policy objective of kind of leveling the playing field, right? And we don't want to leave people out. We don't want communities to be left behind or or workers that have been displaced to continue to be, you know, out of these these great industries that do provide high paying, you know, quality jobs. And and I'd be remiss to to not mention that there are some added requirements on a lot of the tax credits around labor. And basically, they require that if you want the full credit, you have to pay your laborers and mechanics who are constructing and operating and maintaining the project a prevailing wage. And that's basically like the Davis-Bacon Act wage. Um, The Department of Labor sets it based off of locality. So it ensures that, you know, we're not just giving tax credits to giant developers. We're making sure that they're paying the people they're doing the good work of developing these projects, a, a prevailing or, or good living wage. You also have to employ apprentices in the development and construction of these projects. So it, it, it's ensuring that we're, we're paying folks well and we're training people. And you have to be part of this apprenticeship program that is available in this country. And so it's bringing more workers into the fold and training them, you know, again, in this kind of, you know, great burgeoning industry. We'll be right back. Get serious about sustainability. Assurance services from ABS Quality Evaluations can guide you with ISO certifications for environmental, health and safety, energy management, and more. Our globally accredited experts can help you become energy efficient and save overhead costs. Go to www.abs.com dash qe.com or click on the link in the show notes to learn more. And now back to my conversation with Lauren Collins from Vincent and Elkins. All right. Now you mentioned earlier, you know, 45Q and hydrogen. So I, w- I want to talk a little bit about how this bill impacts sectors like that. You know, so hydrogen, uh, CCUS and nuclear, you know, how does it treat those technologies? Because we spend so much time talking about wind and solar and battery, but you know, what's the treatment in those areas? Yeah. I, some of this will remain to be seen, right? You know, I, I think those technologies, you know, carbon capture has been around for quite a while, right? I think there's there's a fair bit of technology developed there, though, though it certainly has room to, go, to grow. Hydrogen and nuclear, you know, I, I, I wouldn't try to venture a guess at to 
you know, how big of an impact it will have. It will have an impact. We have deals that we've been working on, you know, over this year in the hydrogen space in particular, that were basically go, no go, depending on whether legislation of this kind got enacted. And you know what, it's been a month since Manchin said he wouldn't vote on any sort of climate change legislation. So all of those deals went away, you know, folks figured they'd go back to their corners and lick their wounds and figure out what they were going to do. All of those deals get to come back now. And now, you know, these development stage hydrogen projects have a hope, you know, they, they can now be economic because there's this potential for this powerful tax credit. So it, I'm certain it will cause hydrogen projects to be developed that would not otherwise be developed. I hope it's a lot of hydrogen projects. We'll see. Nuclear, I mean, this is another one where I've been doing this for a decade, never seen a nuclear deal. You know, I'm sure people have done them. I haven't seen them. But now with this credit, I think we're going to see them. You know, I certainly hope that we see them. I hope we see them in the near term. I think nuclear, you know, is and should be an important part of our energy mix. It's done responsibly. Um, So hopefully it resurrects that market a bit. And, you know, again, with things like transferability of the credit, I think it makes it more economic and opens up the market for people that might be interested in investing in nuclear. And then as far as carbon capture, I mean, certainly people were doing carbon capture deals on the basis of the existing credit that that had been in place for a while now. But the legislation increases the amount of the credit significantly, and it lowers the threshold for when you qualify for the credit. So not only do you get more credit, but there'll be more projects that can qualify more easily. So it expands the scope of projects that otherwise wouldn't qualify or frankly, we were having to like overstructure or spend a lot of legal time and analysis to figure out if we could shoehorn them in one of the you know various rules. Now the, the the path to qualification is a lot easier. So it's the same thing. Deals that were kind of on the fringes or you know development stage projects that eh, maybe they didn't kind of pencil out. Now we can go back to the drawing board, rerun the numbers. And those deals start to work again. So, you know, all of this is to say is I think the legislation will do what it's intended to do, which is encourage and promote development in these areas so that we're not just reliant on solar and wind and traditional energy sources. Because if, if you look at product, you know, projections of our energy needs in this country, we will not have enough if that's all we're relying on. We need to have a really mixed you know, stream and source of energy if we're going to have any chance of meeting our needs and doing so in a responsible manner, too. So now we've all been hearing a lot about you know, supply chain issues and you know, the growing concern about you know, precious metals and their availability. So how does this bill you know, tackle manufacturing and minerals? So there's there's one um, one big really important provision that is directed at this idea um, and specifically domestic manufacturing, production, and mining of minerals. 
Um, and that is the Advanced Manufacturing Production Tax Credit. Essentially, what this, this provides is that if you manufacture, produce, or mine either certain renewable energy components or certain minerals that are used in these technologies in the U.S., and you then sell them or they're incorporated into a larger component or facility, you get a tax credit per component or kind of per unit of mineral that had been mined and produced. So, you know, we're having conversations with people that are, you know, manufacturers and miners even, um, which is fun. You know, I didn't think I'd be having um, client calls with miners, but, you know, here we are. And basically, they are looking to take their offshore operations and move them to the U.S. These are like real-time live conversations we are having because this legislation and the credits that are in there make it attractive to do so. So the policy goals of increasing domestic manufacturing and you know making the labor market more competitive in these types of um, manufacturing jobs and mining jobs, it is in process. You know, I'm, I'm seeing positive movement in this area, which is very exciting. And on top of that, so there's this important manufacturing production tax credit. There's also incentives for people to buy this stuff. So the manufacturers get a credit from the government when they produce it. And then on the flip side, the, the buyers of these various renewable com- components and facilities they get an additional tax credit if they're buying that stuff that has been made in the U.S. So there's a two-sided benefit for both parties. So it really incentivizes the entire market to find a way to make U.S. manufacturing work. All right. Now, I want you to step back here real quick. And you know, you've been covering this sector and working in this sector, I should say, for years and years and years. And I'm sure you follow the way that this legislation has been you know, talked about and written about in the media. Are there any aspects of it that you think are overhyped? Hopefully you can tell I'm really excited about this. And like, if anyone's overhyping it, I am completely guilty. I think you'll hear a lot of people say that the direct pay and the transferability provisions are overhyped. I, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff in the press about, you know, are, are they really that beneficial? They might be kind of hard to administer you're still going to have some residual, you know, recapture or other liabilities that people need to worry about. Yeah, yeah, that is sure, whatever, you know. Um, when you read that stuff, always check your source. I, I feel like so much of the time it's, you know, tax equity attorneys like myself that are throwing water on these programs. And I, I think that's a mistake. I do think that these programs are going to be incredibly important. I don't think they're being overhyped, so I'm answering your question in, in the negative. But I think that, you know, as with the legislation providing a more expansive set of rules for types of projects that qualify, you know, we also have an expanded set of people who want to be involved or will want to be involved because of this legislation. And I think there's going to be room for everyone. So the traditional tax equity structures that I've been doing for a decade, 
they will continue. There is a huge place in the market for that. It's an important source of financing. It's a pretty efficient source of financing. So I think, you know, folks like me who have built their career on it can sleep easy at night. No need to panic. But there's also going to be this whole other developing, basically, industry and marketplace for tax credits. And I think we need to make sure that we're being innovative. And you know, tax lawyers in particular, we can't get stuck in this you know, one-track mindset of, we like tax equity, let's stick with it. No, I, I think we need to be innovative. I think we need to think about ways to make direct pay and transferability work. Because if we can get it to work, I think it only helps the industry and the marketplace. And, you know, just as a human being, like our climate and the world. So I think we need to spend a lot of time focusing on it. I will say that there's, there is an important limitation. I think that the, the legislation wanted to make it easier for tax exempts and like state and local governments to invest. As we talked about earlier, they, they're able to do direct payment of the credits, which I think was a, it was an important you know, goal and a, a smart move on the part of the government. But there's a missing piece in the legislation that I think is going to make it hard for private equity, which is typically you know, oftentimes how tax exempts actually invest in these things to actually use that direct pay. I think there's a legislative fix that that we should explore. That could tamp down some of the ability for tax exempts and kind of munis to invest. I don't think it's insurmountable, um, but it will take some work on behalf of tax lawyers, maybe lobbyists to try to get those rules to work in such a way that they were intended. Lauren, are you suggesting that the private equity crowd was left out of a piece of legislation? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, I would never suggest that. Um, I, I think they, uh, they made out pretty well. Gotcha. All right, I want to take that last question and just, and just flip it around. So, are there any pieces of this legislation? You know, it's massive. It's you know, three hundred and seventy billion dollars of, of climate aspects. Are there any pieces of it that are kind of flying under the radar that you think could have a, a bigger impact than than people understand? Yeah. Well, I, I'll say what I think is is missing that I don't think people are focusing on enough. And that is the lack of any sort of transmission tax credit. The Build Back Better legislation had a transmission tax credit. It did not make its way into the IRA. I have no idea how. It seems like a ginormous mistake. You know, and I don't want to overstate it, but it, it seems foolhardy to have this incredible legislation that by all accounts is going to result in, you know, a flood of capital, um, two times or five times installations of renewable resources and our transmission grid isn't going to be upgraded. I mean, you know, how, how does that work? You know, I, I goodness, I'm, I'm not an engineer, but, you know, just sitting back and seeing the types of constraints our transmission grid has now, I'm worried that we've created this legislation that sounds great, but how do we actually get the energy to our homes on our current grid? We do have the standalone storage tax credit. 
I know that will encourage more storage to be developed. That'll be a piece of the puzzle, but we've got to figure out this transmission thing. We need to incentivize people to upgrade the transmission grid, find ways to make it economic, you know, provides, there's like some grants in there. They're kind of throwaway. I, I don't think they do much. We need more transmission attention in order for this to actually kind of play out the way we hope it will. The kind of related thing is there's a solar PTC option. So previously, if you were developing a solar project, you were going to take an investment tax credit on it. Now you have an option of switching to a production tax credit. And I think a lot of people will will make that election. You know, we're hearing as much as two thirds of solar projects will probably be a solar PTC deal now. I think that could also put some additional constraints on our transmission grid and encourage more negative bidding. So, you know, I, you know, I, I, I said earlier I was super optimistic and, you know, overhyping things. These are some areas where, you know, there's not enough attention on. They're kind of missing from the legislation. Um, I hope they're fixed. I don't know that we're going to have enough time, you know, just with, you know, midterms coming up and the like. All right. And one of the things we like to do on the show is ask our guests for bold predictions, right? And so do you have any bold predictions, you know, five or 10 years from now, when we look back at how this legislation is performed in the real world, what are we going to see? I hope we see um, this playing out the way that we expect. I mean, as, as I mentioned earlier, I think that um, folks are predicting like $3.5 trillion of capital investment. Wind is supposed to double in installations year over year. Solar is like five times. Um, so I hope five years from now, we, we kind of look back and we're like, this is, had kind of worked, right? And we're starting to see, you know, five years from now, we, we should be seeing these projects starting to go in service. We should be starting to see our, our energy mix more diverse. You know, hopefully we'll see some hydrogen projects really get off the ground. You know, there, there's projects we're working on now that are kind of a mix of everything. So you'll have one major project that has a wind piece and a hydrogen piece and a carbon capture piece. And it's moving from one state to the next. And our grid is kind of um, not so um, compartmentalized. I hope that's what we see. I think this transmission thing is going to be a problem that, that again, worries me. I think we've got to figure that out somehow. Um, I think storage may be kind of the gap fill for a while. I also think I, I keep harping on transferability because I think it's so cool. I think we're going to see kind of these like credit funds develop where basically we'll have, you know, a, a, a fund essentially buys credits from developers and it will have a variety of investors who've invested in the fund and are able to take advantage of tax credits in exchange for their investment. I, I think they'll, they'll then be kind of a, a marketplace for credits. You know, they'll, I don't want to say like an ETF for, for tax credits, but you know, something like that, right? And we've been getting a lot of questions of uh, how much are these things going to go for? How much is a tax credit? What, what, what do you think you're going to sell it for? 
I don't know, <laughs> you know, um, they, they asked the tax lawyers and they were, you know, we're always like, uh, you know, you guys are the business people, you, you tell us what they're going to trade for. It'll depend on asset type. It'll depend on credit worthiness of the, the sponsor developer. It'll depend on the relationship between the parties, but there will be a market for these credits. I'd like to see, you know, folks like you and I being able to invest in credits like this. We can't right now the way that the rules are written. I, if I'm going to make a bold prediction, it's that, you know, within the next five years, they'll get rid of that limitation. So hopefully, you know, folks like you and I and others who are interested in this industry, we can invest and, and why not, right? You know, if you can invest in cryptocurrency, why not invest in a solar project in Arizona or wind project in you know, West Texas or maybe not? But, you know, pick your asset, hydrogen, whatever. I think that would be an incredibly cool place for this to go. You know, you can imagine like having an app on your phone of, you know, your fund where you invest in renewables all over the country. That would be pretty rad. Yeah, rad indeed. I love that word. I've been trying to bring that word back. So yes, that sounds, yes. That sounds, like, a, sounds like a pretty awesome future. Hey, Lauren, I really appreciate your time and covering all this. Your insight's been wonderful. So thanks a lot for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. That's our show for today. But before we get out of here, I want to say one final thank you to our sponsor, ABS Quality Evaluations. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to SmartBrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of SmartBrief, a future company.